Today, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 19. So go ahead and get your Bibles open there. We're looking at the first six verses. We're looking at the subject of general revelation. If you have your notepads out or notebooks out to take notes, the title of today's sermon is We Believe in General Revelation. We'll follow the We Believe series all the way through this year. And so this one is We Believe in General Revelation. General revelation properly understood leads to neither pride nor arrogance. General revelation properly understood leads to neither pride nor arrogance. General revelation properly understood leads to worship and admiration of God. We'll come back to that towards the end. Revelation itself is derived from the Latin word revelatio, which is a translation of the Greek apocalypsis. So if you've ever heard of the book of Revelation, referred to as the Apocalypse of John, the very last book in your New Testament, that's why, that's the Greek word, the apocalypse. It is a revelation. To have a revelation, which you understand the word itself is to reveal, is to uncover, it is to show. And so you picture in your mind perhaps a a painting that is being unveiled, it is being revealed, and so they remove the cover from the painting or a Christmas present that is wrapped, and as the wrapping is unfolded, revealed inside would be the present that you want, the object that you appreciate. And so a revelation is an unveiling of something. To have an unveiling of something, you have to have a person who is revealing, a revealer, in this case God, and you have to have a recipient of that revelation, in this case humanity. You understand that the animals don't sit around and contemplate what creation says about a creator. It is only the highest of all creation, humanity created in the image of God, that we sit around and contemplate what a creation says about a creator and what we can learn from it. We are the recipients of this general revelation. It's both personal and it's propositional. God is revealing something personal about himself to us, and he also is revealing something propositional that is about his will for us. So when God reveals through general revelation or special revelation, God reveals something about himself and something about us. There are two major categories of revelation. Today we deal with the first. The first major category of revelation is general or universal revelation. It's general knowledge given to all people by, uh, by God about God. It's access to all. There's another type of revelation that is special revelation. That includes the Word of God and other items, but that's given at a specific time to specific individuals. We'll talk about that more in a different sermon later on this semester. Particular revelation is another word for special revelation, which gives you particular or specific knowledge about God. So of those two categories of revelation, the revealing of who God is, you have general and you have specific or special revelation. Today, we're talking about general revelation. As we talk about general revelation, we look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, C.S. Lewis said about this psalm, it is the greatest poem in all of the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Psalm 19, with 14 verses, with the first six of those dealing with general revelation, has had no less than seven hymns, which I have for you up on the screen, written about Psalm 19 alone. Some of those written about the first six verses, the spacious spacious firmament on high, the heavens declare thy glory, the heavens declare thy glory, Lord. The last or the second set of six verses, uh, Lord, thy word abideth. Jehovah's perfect law restores the soul again. The law of God is good and wise. The most perfect is the law of God. And so you see seven hymns there written about this, but now all of these hymns are really old. 
So I'm challenging you, perhaps the greatest group of musical, creative, writing ability assembled in one chapel, in one setting, perhaps the greatest group of potential ever assembled to write the next greatest song, the next greatest course, the next greatest hymn out of Psalm 19. Anybody willing to take up that challenge and give it a try? I've got one hand over here, just one, I've got two. That's weak, come on now. You can write a poem, it can be bad, it doesn't matter, it's gonna edify you spiritually. There you go, I have three now. Because as you focus on what God's word has said and you try to express it yourself, it allows you to think through it. I challenge you seriously to write some of the next great courses and hymns. Theologically solid, compelling, to help us focus our minds on what God has done. This chapter breaks down with Psalm 19, one through six, talking about creation or general revelation. Psalm 19, seven through 11, which will be the subject of another sermon, focusing on the law or special revelation. And then Psalm 19, 12 through 14 is the proper response to revelation. That's how the chapter breaks down. But today we're only gonna focus on Psalm 19, one through six. And then we're going to back out and zoom out to look at general revelation and what it says to us. Covering this topic alone could take an entire year. In fact, entire books have been written on the subject of general revelation in and of itself. So as I go through the next 30 minutes or so, I recognize and I want you to recognize that I am skipping a rock across the surface of an ocean of depth in the knowledge of general revelation. We are getting just a glimpse to to hopefully whet your appetite so that you will dive in deeper in general revelation. In fact, one of those books that's kind of written on general revelation is this book here, which is The Heavens and the Earth. I'll try to hold it still to see if you can get a a zoom-in lens on it there. It's written by four gentlemen, but two of those gentlemen you're going to recognize, Dr. Whitmore, who serves here, and Dr. Gallmer, who serves here. And so would you congratulate them on writing an excellent textbook? I am working my way through the textbook. I encourage you to do the same, and some of you will have no choice. You'll have to. Here's what it says in the preface. Our desire as authors is to craft a work that not only educates but edifies the reader by showing how the creation testifies to and glorifies its creator. That's general revelation. Though we may present many different topics, a common theme animates each and every chapter. God is the creator, the sustainer, and the provider of this world, and we wish to honor him for his great work in all we do. This creator has made himself known not just through observation and understanding of the creation. More than that, he also reveals himself to humanity in the pages of Holy Scripture and through his Son who dwelt among us. This, is, this may be the only, but if not, it's one of the few earth science textbooks written from a creationist point of view and specifically a young earth creationist point of view. So I encourage you to get it. And if you happen to be watching online, this is a great textbook for homeschool or any other uh, items that you may need one for. So thank you, gentlemen, for writing that work for us. All right, let's move into our text here. Psalm 19, verses one through six. Would you stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, 
and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Dear Lord, today as we look at how you have revealed yourself through creation, God, I pray that you will help us just to catch a glimpse of your glory and to be in awe of what you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. In Psalm chapter 19, David shares of general revelation moving from a general description in verses 1 through 4 of the heavens and the skies to a specific focus of the sun in verses 5 and 6. He will give us some some metaphors. He will give us some, some similes here where we will look and he will draw a comparison there as well. This psalm does not open with praise as some psalms does where the writer is praising God, but it personifies creation itself so that creation is crying out and declaring the praise of God Almighty. The personification of creation allows it to pour forth speech, to declare, to proclaim the greatness of God. Look at the structure just in verse 1 and 2 and the parallel structure as we put it for you up here on the screens. The heavens declare the glory of God. In a parallel statement, the skies, or in the New American Standard, the expanse, or in the New King James, the firmament. And hopefully what you're seeing when you look at that is you're coming to mind Genesis 1, verses 6 through 8, where it talks about the heavens and the expanse and the firmament of God's creation. And this is intentionally written here in the Hebrew to spark our memory back to Genesis chapter 1. As we look at how the earth and the heavens declare, how they proclaim the glory of God, the works of His hand. It's day to day they pour forth speech. It's night to night they display knowledge. And so all of creation shouts out that there is a creator. What do the heavens declare? What do the skies proclaim? You think about a work of art. You look at a painting and you begin to examine it and you admire it and you learn something about the painter who created it. You think about a finely crafted piece of furniture, and as you look at the attention to detail and the craftsmanship, you can admire and learn something about the craftsman who formed it. You look at an architectural masterpiece, and you learn about the attention to detail. You learn about the materials that have used, and you learn a glimpse of the architect who designed that piece of work. You look all throughout at things that have been created, whether it's sculpture or art. You look at writings, and you examine the writer who created them. You look at a song, and you look at the artist who wrote the song or put it to the lyrics, and you learn something about the person who formed that. When we look out at creation, when we look out at the seasons, when we look out at everything around us, we learn a glimpse, just a glimpse of God Almighty and what He has created and what He wants to reveal to us about Himself. This is a book written without words. So if you like picture books, this is the book for you, right? You can look out at creation and His picture is different every day as it proclaims the marvelous glory of God. It never sleeps. It exists for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year as it pours forth knowledge. What knowledge, you ask? Just think about the earth and how God created it to sustain life. I have a short little two-minute video here that I want to, to give you the imagery, perhaps, of just some of the things that God created in the earth just so that we could exist here on earth. So go ahead and roll that video now. 
The Bible teaches that the earth was specially designed by God to be inhabited. The earth is ideally placed in the galaxy to protect us from harmful radiation. If the earth were in the center of the galaxy or stuck in a globular cluster outside the galaxy, radiation would be a real problem. The earth is also the right distance from the warming rays of the sun. Our world is neither too hot nor too cold. Even the tilt of the earth seems ideal to regulate heat. If the tilt were increased significantly, summers would be too hot and winters too cold. If the tilt were decreased, the equator would be too hot and the poles too cold. The Earth's mass determines the strength of its gravity. Unlike Mercury, our Earth is big enough to hold on to life-sustaining gases like oxygen and carbon dioxide, but not so big that it is a toxic, gaseous giant like Jupiter. Life requires liquid water. Our planet sits just the right distance from the sun for water to flow as a liquid. In fact, three-quarters of the Earth's surface is covered in liquid water. No other planet is known to have this essential ingredient of life. The Earth has just the right chemicals for life. About 99% of the universe is made of hydrogen and helium, but the Earth is different. It's made of heavier elements which can form compounds essential for life. The Earth has a large moon which keeps the oceans from stagnating and a magnetic field which shields us from harmful radiation. The Earth appears to be an engineering marvel, crafted for life, the stage for unfolding God's glorious plan to dwell with man. So everything that we learn about the Earth, about the heavens, about the skies, proclaim God's handiwork and teach us a little something about God. Verse 2, it says, day to day it pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. When that magnificent sun fades off into the horizon and we watch the glowing reds, the orange, the yellows as the sun begins to set, that does not mean that the curtain is going to fall on the revelation of God. Yet we see little stars begin to pop up, especially if you're out in the country and if you're away from the man-made lights as those stars begin to peek out and begin to adorn the sky. And if you're really far in the north, you can see the northern lights as they come across the sky. And in the midst of that, you reflect on how great this universe is. And we look at what the Hubble telescope and others have shown us, and we realize that we are but one tiny speck in the great span of God's creation. Night by night and day by day, our omnipresent God pours forth his reliability in such a way that ships have navigated their course for centuries by the stars and their consistency as they dance across the night sky. We, in fact, are so fascinated with these that even in our own fictional creations, we focus on them. We focus on things like Star Wars, which happen in a galaxy far, far away. It's all right, I'm a big Star Wars fan. My daughter and I love them, yep. We focus on things like Star Trek. All right, I can't believe we have more Star Trek than Star Wars. So we gotta go back. Star Wars? Star Trek. Okay. So the second half will then explore the final frontier. 
What is the final frontier? It is our fascination to understand what God has created to the ends of the earth and to the extent that it goes. Now, I don't normally recommend you study the message because the message is a paraphrase. They, they take things and they paraphrase it. They don't translate it word for word, and so you miss out on what the original languages are saying. But the paraphrase I did find incredibly helpful today, so I'm going to put it up there on the screen for you. It says this in this particular two verses, God's glory is on tour in the skies. Don't you like the, the symbolism of that, on tour through the skies? You think about a band touring around. God's glory is on tour in the skies. God's craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning. Doesn't that kind of fit for our example here at Cedarville? And Professor Knight lectures each evening. I don't know how many night classes we have going on, but it works, so just go with it. And this allows me to touch on one of the ministries here at Cedarville University. A lot of what you learn in your academic disciplines here at Cedarville come from general revelation. Across many, if not all, of our disciplines, you learn about God's created order and how we have studied things in God's created order, and that applies to the specific discipline that you are learning. As believers with God's spectacles of Scripture, we can look at general revelation and see in an even greater way what God is trying to reveal. God has spoken to us through the earth and through rocks beneath our feet, through plant life, through special features in animal creation, the skies, the water, the geological formations, the principles of mathematics, chemistry, biology. He has spoken to us in galaxies so large that we must feel humble before a transcendent God, and yet he has spoken to us in things so small that it takes microscopes to study them demonstrated how imminent our God is and how he cares for every little detail. He knows the very numbers of hairs on your head or the number of hairs that used to be on your head. We look at biology. We look at pharmaceuticals. We look at the chemical compounds. We look at all that the Lord has allowed us to be able to study and learn through general revelation. And I want to make sure you understand that everywhere we look, we should see things that God has created and that God has put in place and that God wants us to use our giftings to utilize for his glory so that every one of your classes here at Cedarville University should be a worshipful exercise of using the gifts that God has given you and studying more about him so that you result with a feeling of awe before a creator who is this majestic and this detailed. Every one of your professors leads you to a worship exercise in class every day, even though it may not feel like it. As they teach you about a subject and they teach you about general revelation and about truth that is out there, you understand all that God has done and it should give you a deeper appreciation for your creator and for your savior. So this is part of the ministry of the faculty here at Cedarville University. They walk alongside you. They disciple you, they love you, they pray for you, and as they teach you, they teach you with a passion for God, and they teach you in a way to stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So I ask you to please appreciate your faculty members, and would you show that appreciation to those in the room right now? You know, one of the great things about our faculty members is they understand that you don't worship the creation, you worship the creator, and they help to make sure the information is given to you in a right way. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, quote, the existence of creation implied the existence of a creator. 
and the nature of the creation implied that he was wise enough to plan it, powerful enough to execute his plan, and maintain what he had made. So complex a universe demands a creator who can do anything, who knows everything, and who is present everywhere. Verse 3 in this chapter tells us there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Creation writes a book every day. It writes a book that can be read by anybody, even the illiterate. It pours forth speech night and day so that the picture resides everywhere and in all places to all mankind. Martin Luther translated it this way when he said, there is no language nor speech where their voice is not heard. John Calvin put it this way when he said, the testimony of the heavens to God is understood by the peoples of every language and tongue. Verses four through six, we zoom in, we zoom in on the sun. And as our writer takes us and he zooms in in the latter part of verse four, he says he has set a tent for the sun and he zooms in. Why does he choose the sun? We don't know. We're not given the exact reason, but perhaps it's because many cultures worship the sun itself. And what the writer is saying here is that the sun is but a reflection of the glory of God. And so we don't worship the sun as the creation. We worship the creator who created the sun. He zooms in and he says there's been a a tent or a tabernacle developed for the sun. And then he gives you two analogies. He lays it out for you. One is which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Anybody in the room that has recently been married? One, two, three. Any of you have friends that have recently been married? You went to their wedding? Have you been to a wedding in the past six months? Raise your hand. Did the groom look happy? If the groom didn't look happy... That's not a good sign. Just telling you. Usually the groom comes out and the groom is excited. And in our culture, the groom stands at the front of the auditorium there besides the minister who's leading in the wedding. And all of a sudden at the, at the peak moment of the wedding, they're going to throw open the doors and the bride dressed in white is going to come forward. And typically all reactions look to see what the, the bride looks like. And then they zoom right back around to look and see the face of the groom. And they look to see the smile that adorns even the most introverted groom as ear to ear, he sees his beloved walking through the doors. And that's the imagery given to us by the psalmist of the sun as it peaks across the horizon every morning. And as it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber or like a strong man running its course with joy. Now, this image of the strong man running the course may be a warrior who's going out into battle, or it may be like a runner who is running the race set before him. I can tell you it's not like an old, overweight guy like me trying to run the course. That's not the imagery. It's not the guy who's laboring really hard, flopping a little too much, not in in good control, sweat pouring off of the face. That's not it. It's like one of our cross-country runners. How many we got in the room in cross-country? Oh, they're right up there. It's like one of our cross-country runners as they're running across the cross-country course. And with every step, it's like a deer just pouncing across the ground so that it looks as if they are floating above the ground as they move with speed and grace. And you look at their face and they're actually smiling like they enjoy this thing that I call torture. (laughs) I run so that I can eat more. They run because they enjoy it. And you see the expression on their face, and that's the analogy given here is the sun dances across the horizon. Is this a joy? It's something that, that's this putting forth here that we look at creation, we look at what God has revealed to us, and it runs its course with joy. And that's how I know for sure it's not talking about somebody like me. 
Verse six, it says it's rising from the end of the heavens, it's circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Now you just noticed in those previous verses, a mixed metaphor there, the bridegroom and the runner. Now, David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so David can use a mixed metaphor. If you're in your English classes and your English teacher corrects your mixed metaphor, your response should not be back to them, I'm just being biblical, all right? In fact, let me just put a comma here to say to you, if you're in your English classes or other classes and your professors take the time to diligently correct your papers, your response should be of great appreciation that they take the time to walk through your papers in great detail and to mark those up and to help you to learn how to communicate better with the English language. I had to write every paper in my English major three times during my final two years. All of them had mandatory rewrites on them. So if you don't like the fact that your teachers correct your papers, you will find no sympathy here from me. In fact, what you will learn the more you write and the more you try to communicate is that revision is a necessary process of everything. And whatever the professor may be trying to teach you or show you, the response should be, humble adoration that they are spending the time to help you become a better person that can better communicate even if you don't like what they have to say. And even if you don't necessarily agree with what they're trying to change in your style, you learn from them and you, with great detailed precision and excitement in your heart and enthusiasm, revise the paper. All right, end discussion. I'll move on here. That wasn't a very popular discussion, but I think faculty, would you agree that that needs... All right, we've got one, two, there we go, all right. Okay, I'm moving on. All right, we've looked at our passage, general revelation. Now let's zoom back. Very quickly, very briefly, let's zoom back. Let's look at what general revelation does because we've looked at it in creation, but there's also a second part of general revelation. We've got it for you on the screen where it also shows up in human nature. General revelation comes to all people in at least two ways. In creation, you should write that down, and in human nature. That's the second way that general revelation goes. I'm gonna give you several verses, and I'm gonna show them to you on the screen, but you're not gonna have time to turn there, so just write them down in your notebooks. You can look them up later. If you were to look for general revelation of human nature in Scripture, you could look to perhaps John, uh, Job 38, 36. It's where Yahweh asked Job, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? It's a rhetorical response, and the answer is supposed to be only God. God has done all these things. You look at Romans 2, 14 through 16, where it says, for the, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even if they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You understand that through these passages and others like it, through human nature, God has revealed that he exists. Also in creation, beyond just our passage for today, you can look at passages like Psalm 8.3. In fact, the entire Psalm 8 is a great passage for you to memorize, but Psalm 8.3 in particular says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and it personifies that as, as the Lord is putting each one in place, Proverbs 30, 24 through 28 tells us about the creatures that we can look to. On the earth, there are small but exceedingly wise four different things. The ant 
are not a people, are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badger are a people not mighty, yet they make their home in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in ranks. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. And there are, there's something we can pick up from all of those animals. And there are other animals which we can pick up information that can be used spiritually for us if we'll look out at God's great creation. Acts 14, 16, and 17, where Paul there uses this as a bridge to the gospel. And he says, in the generations gone, that he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, and that is general revelation. Romans 1, 18 through 32, and we'll just look at through 23 for this particular morning. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. This last passage also leads us to a second thing, which is to our response to general revelation. You might say, well, if God's creation is so great, why doesn't all mankind just respond to it and seek after God? And that's a valid question, but we understand from that last passage, we suppress the truth. We understand it also in other ways. Romans 1, 18, 22, and 25 talk about it. Romans 3, 11, and 12, which I have for you here, says no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 1 and 53, 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way that seems right to man, but his end is the way to death. What we understand is that when we sinned through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that we inherited a sinful nature, that sinful nature causes us to run away, not just from special revelation, but from general revelation. So natural theology has its limitation in the fact that we suppress the truth of natural theology. We don't listen to what it's saying to us, just like we don't listen to special revelation. And in that sense, it is not salvific for us. You could also see here in Romans 10, 18, starting in verse 14, as I have for you on the screen. Romans 10, 18, the very last verse here is quoting our passage for today of Psalm 19, 4. This passage is in the context of calling for somebody to go out and share the gospel. It says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For in quoting our passage for today, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, I don't have time today to go into the historical consideration, but you could track throughout history as Thomas Aquinas and others have had a higher view of general revelation. Bart and others have had a low view of general revelation. And John Calvin, I would say, has a balanced view of general revelation. 
where he would say to you that all has fallen, but he would say that we need the spectacles of Scripture in order to see and understand general revelation. There's not time to go into that because I want to move to the application for you, and I have four points of application for you this morning. In the four points of application I have for you this morning, the first one is this. General revelation leaves us longing for more. General revelation leaves us longing for more. In our passage today of Psalm 19, you'll notice in verse 1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, El, the basic name for God. But when he moves to his discussion of special revelation in verse 7, it's the law of the Lord, it's Yahweh, it's the specific name of God. And whereas general revelation, the book without words, leads us to a knowledge of God in general, the book with words, special revelation, teaches us his name, his laws, and the proper response for salvation. General revelation places us without excuse and leaves us longing for more information. We just looked at Romans 10, 18, which quoted Psalm 19, 4 in the discussion of a necessity of a preacher. General revelation leaves us longing for more. Number two, we should respond with passion for the gospel and all toward our creator. General revelation is to all. So it forms a bridge to the gospel, which Paul uses in Acts 14 and then also in Acts 17. But we have to be careful as we use creation as a bridge to the gospel to make sure that we carefully distinguish Jesus Christ from the Allah of Islam or adding another God to the pantheon of Buddhism. We have to make sure we go to special revelation to scripture to identify Jesus Christ as the one true God. For the believer seeing general revelation through the spectacles of scripture through God's word, we should respond in all at what God has given us. And that means in every one of your classes, you should respond with all towards God. Number three, scripture over science. I mentioned this specifically for a university-wide principle. At Cedarville University, we believe in general revelation, but let me be clear, where the scripture speaks, it rules. There are a lot of universities out there these days that are using science to interpret the Bible, science as a grid to say what the Bible is supposed to mean. Most universities, that leads them to evolutionary theory. Here, we believe the Bible and that the Bible is God's infallible, inerrant word and that the Bible will stand. And that's why I'm so excited that Dr. Whitmer and Gomer and others have contributed to a book that specifies and talks about young creationist earth science in the textbook that I've already pointed out to you. Scientific theories change. You can look out and every day there's a new theory on whether salt's good for you or whether salt's bad for you. I just choose the one that says salt's good for you and ignore all the ones that say it's bad for you. You can look out how scientific theories have changed over time, but the word of God is constant and stands forever. And we'll come back to that in a later sermon on special revelation. Finally, lastly, and most importantly, we must respond with humility. Psalm 19, 12 through 14 takes us to that point. It's how the writer of this psalm concludes. In verse 12, he responds with humility over his hidden faults. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's a humility that should come within us when we recognize that we can't even accurately perceive our own faults before a holy and righteous God. When we look at general revelation and we learn knowledge, sometimes we get puffed up and prideful about the degrees or the letters after our name or about the knowledge in our head. And we walk around with arrogance and we think that we are somebody when we understand a thimble full of God's knowledge in this universe. 
We should respond to general revelation with great humility, understanding that we know very little and that God is a great and awesome God. Presumptuous sin, 1913. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see here that the psalmist, after general revelation and special revelation, says, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sin. We should all pray that prayer where we presume upon God's grace because we love our sin more than we love God. And so we participate in our sin, presuming that God will forgive us yet once again. And so in that activity, we have a presumptuous sin. And Paul addresses this. May I sin so that grace may abound, may it never be. And some of you have sin issues that you need to deal with still even today. And I would encourage you to deal with those issues and not to continue in presumptuous sin. He also has a prayer for sanctification in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, all that I say, the meditations of my heart, my seed of emotions, my being, who I am, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. General revelation properly understood leads us to neither pride nor arrogance. General revelation properly understood leads to worship and admiration of God. In fact, I could say it this way, and here's the final thought. Good theology leads to neither pride nor arrogance. Good theology leads to worship and admiration of God. Let me say that again. Good theology leads to neither pride nor arrogance. But good theology leads to worship and admiration of God. As you learn over the next one through four years here at Cedarville, diving deep into general revelation, may it never make you prideful or arrogant, but may it always make you humble and responding in praise and worship and admiration to God. Dear Lord, we thank you for your special revelation and your general revelation. God, we thank you for your grace to us. May we never take it for granted. May we never presume upon it. And Lord, may we always recognize who we are in light of who you are. This is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.